Welcome to the Cadenza Podcast, Sounds Edition. I'm your host, Tim Harrison. On this episode of Cadenza Sounds, I sit down for a conversation with pianist, composer, and band leader, Bartosz Hadala. Bartosz was kind enough to invite me to his Toronto home for a conversation about his life up to now, his views on improvised music, and his brand new grand piano delivered two days prior. Bartosz Hadela is a world-renowned Polish-Canadian pianist and composer now based in Toronto. Born and raised in Poland, where he began his professional career after discovering the piano at the age of seven, Hadela was awarded a scholarship to the prestigious Berklee College of Music before attending the Odessa Conservatory in Ukraine under Anatoly Kardashev and Western Michigan University at Kalamazoo. During multiple stints in New York City, Hadala performed and recorded with artists such as Lenny White, Billy Hart, Ada Rovati, amongst many others, before booking the sessions that would eventually become the basis for his debut album. After living and studying in the United States, Hadala moved to Canada after releasing his debut jazz CD with the Bartosz Hadala group, The Runner-Up, in 2010, featuring such artists as Randy Brecker and Antonio Sanchez. Recognized by many as primarily a jazz and improvisational musician, Hadala is also an accomplished classical performer and accompanist for artists of many different genres. More recently, Hadala has performed as part of the duo The Night Watchers with Rupert Waits, continues to tour Poland and Europe, most recently with drummer Jacek Peltz and bassist Maurizio Roli, and works with Toronto-based greats such as Marito Marquez, Larnell Lewis, Rich Brown, Mike Downs, and Chris Gale. Recorded on March 30th, 2017 at his home in Toronto, here is my conversation with Bartosz Hadala. Bartosz, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it and inviting me into your home and, uh, yeah. and the uh, the excitement of the brand new piano. Yeah! <laughs> Fabulous. Oh, it's all jazz. It's all jazz. Yeah. So, uh, so tell me about the new piano. Tell me, tell me what you have here and uh, why it's so special. Oh, it is very special, Tim. Because <laughs> I've never had a piano before. We're talking grand of any sort. So I'm extremely happy. I bought my first upright not too long ago. And then I decided to, uh, to upgrade greatly. So uh, you're looking at this beautiful thing that already got upgraded from the previous piano. So, you know, once you start buying these things, I think it's, it's life getting dangerous a little, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, you want the best instrument, of course, to play on. And so what happened, I bought an <clears throat> instrument first that, you know, I wasn't entirely happy with. Luckily, with all the, you know, maneuvers, they managed to, to get me a new one for slightly more money, you know, and I'm enjoying this. This is actually kawaii piano with this uh, fiber parts in it, and it's a uh, extremely fast piano, which I like. So explain to me what a fast piano is. Uh, the one that, you know, mechanism works kind of intuitively hmm. with the pianist. I say the piano plays you instead of you playing the piano, you know. But it's, it's a really nice instrument. I highly recommend this, even though I'm not getting any money for recommending this, this brand. Because, you know, back in, uh, I should say, you know, 20 years ago, I would never look at kawaii because I never thought they were part of uh, the big scheme, you know, selling pianos and being important. Mm. Because Steinway was always, you know, the, the important one. And then there was Yamaha chasing Steinway. And I know all the stories about, you know, Yamaha coming to Poland and uh, showing their pianos during Chopin piano competition. And then at some point, even Yamaha equipped uh, the, the Academy in Warsaw with baby grands, you know. So like when I was there, years ago practicing for something you know I actually every room I think you know had a Yamaha in it so they were really trying to push the sales and like let people know that they exist and they do things 
So then, you know, kawaii was never a thing. Even when I was in college, these were like honestly the worst pianos we could practice on. Hmm. And then, you know, bam, 20 years later or something, you know, you see them and they really rediscovered themselves kind of thing. And they went for, you know, the most uh, like fancy mechanisms and stuff. And this is called Millennium 3 mechanism in this. And uh, they have really nice pianos right now, you know, starting at $150,000. They are really nice pianos. Wow. Like, you can actually, you know, this is a real concert instrument that you can actually do magic on. So, you know, hmm. it's nice stuff. But, you know, this piano is a little bit longer than the Baby Grand, and I think it sounds great. You know, it's always the, a matter of having a really nice uh, low end on the piano. And, you know, lots of pianos fail during that test. It's either the, the shortness of the string, I think, or the way hammers are, are done in that part of the keyboard because you know this one gets a really nice I think sound even though you know we're talking relatively short strings hmm. you know again I'm extremely happy with the purchase how, <laughs> how, uh, how big is this is this uh, this I want to say it's not it's five three oh. yeah it's a little slightly bigger than uh, and uh, then the you know the baby grand which is four one I think hmm. you know so this is extra 20, 30 centimeters. Wow. To the thing. Some more strings, some more vibration. A little yeah, more <laughs> but more awesomeness and, you know, harmonics and yeah, good vibration. Ah, very well said. <laughs> <laughs> well, you hear guitarists and bassists talk about fast necks on a guitar or on a bass, you know, and, and I guess as a, as a non-pianist, I never thought of a fast piano. It's how sensitive I think they are, you know, then you, you feel like you can make you know, music with more nuance mm -hmm. to it, as opposed to keyboard that's hard to, you know, to press the keys on, and you just know you have to hammer these keys, you know, to get the sound out of it, you know, in the first place, right? right. But with these ones, you know, you feel it right away, even though, you know, I haven't, honestly, it's a, it's a shame, but I haven't been playing real piano for years, mm. you know, because wow. you move, you travel, you're here and there, and, you know, all I've had my entire life was uh, some kind of a model of Yamaha, uh, P80 at first, then 85, then all these things. Now it's 115, you know, mm. keyboards. So really good keyboards to play on, but obviously, you know, you can't compare them to any acoustic instrument at all, you mm -hmm. know? And they just, you know, now I'm going to probably hate them, you know, when I get on stage and I have to play them. I'm going to just be all, you know, unhappy. <laughs> but uh, I really, you know, that's all I had. So this is brand new and I'm not entirely, you know, crazy in shape mm. still. But I feel like I can make music on this one right away. And the funny thing about good instruments is that you start playing them, even though you may not be ready for them right away, they kind of pull you in and everything warms up and, and your fingers learn how to make things happen. All of a sudden it feels easier. Hmm. It's like, you know, a little bit with, uh, I guess, with like any kind of uh, workout, you know, like you get into it, it's hard, then it becomes easier and then you feel that you're actually worked you know, a little bit, so you feel the, you know, that you are tired a little, and mm. you have to rest. But, you know, this piano is, is like that, you know, you start, it may feel a little, you know, tough to play, and then it kind of pulls you in, you start, you know, flying, and then later on you have to take a break, and, you know, the most you do, you know, the more you do the routine throughout, you know, months and years, you know, things are getting better, I think. Does it change the nature of what you play when you feel different? Man, I'm sure, I'm sure it does. You know, all of a sudden you start playing things that, you know, were not available before. It's like, it, it affects, yeah, everything. You know, starting from the weather and the color of the room you're in, you know, all the way to, I think, you know, the piano and obviously, you know, how sensitive it is. Mm. Because you feel it's like, it's easy to play on, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you want to play more notes. I don't know if it's better, you know, in jazz there's a... There's lots of theories about that, you know. Do we want to play more? Do we want to play less? You'll hear a lot of less is more in jazz right. and stuff like that. But honestly, you know, it's like it feels, yeah. The way it feels, you know, it affects, yeah, what you play and how you play. Uh, so let's talk uh, a little bit about where you came from to get here. So you're Polish-born and uh, you grew up in Poland, uh, speaking English, Polish and Russian as well. So you're multilingual as well as multi-talented. We know that you sing. 
Yeah. Heard you singing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part. Yes. Uh, oh, we'll get to that. Um, so, uh, so what brought you to uh, to piano, and what brought you to jazz? Like, how did uh, how did jazz become something in in your life and a focus in your life? It is really simple. It starts with the father, who uh, actually is a clarinetist oh. and a big fan of Dixieland. Oh, nice. So uh, it all started with his collection of of Dixieland records, mm. long plays. And, uh, you know, like, honestly, as far as I remember, my best time as a kid was listening to these records when I was six years old, you know. My father was still doing, like, gigs around town. He had those big speakers. So I was attaching this little record player to these speakers because it had a really nice low bass, you know. Like, everything sounded awesome in these speakers. So, you know, I would hook them up and listen to Dixieland records and, you know, then started to playing along with these records because, you know, I figured the music wasn't crazy difficult. So that was, you know, like very early. Um, and then I started school of music, you know, at the age of seven. So that put me through all the, you know, classical routine of things. Not a bad thing, you know, but at a time it was pain because obviously that music is difficult. You have to be practicing lessons twice a week, you know, and in Poland, the system is six years plus six years. There's a primary musical school and a secondary musical school. And, uh, you know, lots and lots of playing. Uh, I couldn't be the best in jazz because, like, jazz scene was non-existent in my hometown, you know, kind of thing. So I tried to, you know, uh, compete in a classical world, obviously, you know. So that was part of the whole thing. I was pretty good at it, but you know, I didn't understand much about music, honestly, until later in my life. You know, I didn't understand uh, many things. I just knew that I had to go play the notes, you know, play them either fast or slow kind of thing. Classical music, I, ju I just couldn't connect with this whole idea of music pre-written, organized on the page for me. Jazz was always something that I loved to do because it was, you know, I could create. Here I was forced to be an actor. I was forced to get the thing under my fingers and, you know, sell it to the audience. But still I didn't understand it at that age, you know, that I was doing anything. I was just kind of, you know, going through the phase of, you know, playing harder and harder pieces and, and just getting better, I guess, you know, in some ways. At the same time, you know, jazz, I started developing that uh, for real at the age of like uh, 15, 16 when I attended a few workshops in Poland. These workshops were, um, you know, uh, led by really good professionals from Poland, but also American musicians, guys from Berklee College of Music were coming, like I remember Greg Badolato, who was a great sax player, but also, you know, like had lots of knowledge about harmony and stuff, so he was teaching those classes. Orville Wright, there was another pianist coming also, I had classes with him, he was also, you know, like American school, they, they knew everything about everything, you know, so like, it was great, and we were 15 years old, you know, we knew nothing, but they, they were teaching us all these, you know, two five ones and then scales and what to do, what not to do, standards and things, you know, so it was a great environment, it was like two weeks at a time during summer, and then, you know, I had a whole year to practice those things and then another workshop, you know, so these are very popular, but back in the day, we had only one camp like this in Poland, I believe, you know, now it's 17 of them, I believe, you know, like many, many, mm. to the point that now they have guys coming from New York City, you know, and if you have enough money, like let's say thousand dollars, you can go and because it's so expensive, you know, you get to spend time with the teacher of your, you know, your choice kind of thing, you know, and be with him for two weeks, that's priceless, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't have that. At, at my time, there was like, you know, one camp, you either like the guys or you don't, you know? They were all great, but I'm saying like these days, you know, because people are looking for work and stuff like that and during the summer, not everybody's gigging all that much. So it's interesting. Now you can really get, you know, good really fast mm -hmm. if you really want to, you know, with all the technology and stuff. Has that, uh, that balance of primarily classical to a little bit of jazz shifted to more jazz, less classical? Has, has that changed in some way or is it still very classical focused? Uh, like Europe, obviously, you know, if you're an Eddie Izzard fan, Europe where the history comes from, right? So there's a whole lot of history of, of classical music and then, you know, the American idiom, if you will, of jazz moving into Europe. 
post-Second World War and sort of jazz diplomacy and, and the growth of free jazz in Europe. How did Poland react to, or the, the Polish public react to that kind of music, you know, being very sort of classical focused and having jazz sort of start to inundate? Has it, has it become something that's very popular or recognized or respected? I'll say crazy popular. Wow, okay. Craziness hmm. is the word. <laughs> We're talking probably 15 up to 20 major jazz festivals in a country that's much smaller than Ontario, of course, wow. right? Major acts, like, you know, we see Herbie Hancock twice a year, you know, Pat Metheny, this and that. Everybody, you know, like, you just have to, if you have your favorite artists, you just have to check out a few, you know, headlines for festivals, and, and you'll get them, you know. Richard Bona, he's a cross between jazz and world music kind of thing, but, you know, Everybody, and, and Poland is crazy about jazz hmm. in so many ways, you know. I was just checking some things on Facebook, so, you know, guys like Jerry Berganzi having masterclass somewhere there. You know, like, it happens all the time, and, you know, major acts are there, and, and major festivals with, like, some serious amount of money hmm. putting that music, you know, out for the public to see. So, uh, yeah, that, that's one thing. But if, if you read anything about jazz in Poland, you know, you'll see that guys like uh, world-famous Michael Urbaniak, violinist who came out of Poland uh, probably in the 70s, I want to say, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, they, can, they wrote their own, you know, bios and stuff like that to show you what happened and how, how Dixieland and then every other form of jazz entered Poland you know, the, the Iron Curtain and everything, people were so enthusiastic about it to the point that, you know, the government was worrying that it was going to cause some kind of, you know, rebellion across the country, you know, that people, that the jazz was dangerous mm. because it carried that spirit of freedom in it, you know, so that, that's, that was the concern. As you know, probably in, in Russia, mm. it was so strict mm -hmm. that you wouldn't be able to, like, put anything with a, you know, swing beat in it mm -hmm. kind of thing. They were so afraid. They, they just held everything, they, they had control over music in, in, in many ways. In Poland, it was a lot looser, you know, like you could do things, you know, here and there. So, yeah, Poland was really happening from the beginning, you know. They invited, my father has, you know, tapes from, you know, Benny Goodman's concert in Poland, like where he recorded from the radio, you know, listening to it when he was younger, so stuff like that. So, anyway, um, big, big hit, you know, jazz definitely happening. Hmm. And, and, and on the increase, it seems. Definitely, yeah, because, you know, what happened, at, at, up to a certain point, there was only one school, uh, higher education school, where you could get your diploma in jazz kind of thing, mm -hmm. single one in Poland. And then after that, people started going, you know, abroad. I was part of that movement, you know, my generation. And actually lots of guys who finished Berkeley or uh, even NEC programs, stuff like that, actually went back to Poland to make music there. You know, it's interesting. Like, uh, for me, it was never a question. I, I always wanted to stay in America and make music here because I think, you know, this music belongs to America in, in many ways. Well, Americans invented it. But, you know, uh, in Europe, there's this funny thing. If, if you go and check out uh, one label, uh, specifically, it's called ACT, it's a German label. You'll see what's happening in, in European jazz these days, you know. So we have uh, trio, piano, uh, woodwind, and a percussion, mm. for instance. Or we have a trio where it's piano, percussion, and cello. Mm. Stuff like that, you know. So you say, you know, you see, you, can, you may just think that it's a classical uh, approach to certain things, you know. I get them in one thing, that they're looking for a certain amount of nuance, dynamics, and things, you know. In American jazz, if you think Elvin Jones, there's a certain amount of energy, mm -hmm. and, you know, it just has to be a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And in Europe, I think they started looking for more color, dynamics, and stuff like that, and this whole thing became very delicate in many ways, you know. So it, it kind of distanced itself from American music where, you know, you just have a drum set, for instance. Mm -hmm. It guarantees a certain amount of volume, you know. It forces everybody to play at certain volume, you right. know. When you put a percussionist behind you, then, well, you can go pianissimo, you mm -hmm. know, and you can still make music, right, and stuff like that. So anyway, mm. is it better? I don't know. It's, it's a matter of taste. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't change it for, for still, you know, good groovy rhythm section with the drums, you know. 
But in, in Europe, they, they went in all sorts of directions. And I think, you know, honestly, as you may have heard, uh, the argument by famous, you know, Wynton Marsalis, who says, you know, Polish jazz? What, what did you say? What? You know, he's just upset about, you know, calling it even Polish jazz. And I, I get it because, you know, I believe Chopin is Polish, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of Jap Japanese people, Chinese people, and from all over the world coming to Poland to study Chopin because there's a reason for it. He was Polish, the music is based on Polish folk, mm. and the people have it in their blood, you know. Whoever teaches you that stuff, they pretty much, you know, they feel it, mm -hmm. this music in, in many ways. We don't feel jazz in the same way. We have no idea what this whole thing is. We really don't. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I've been in America for, I don't know how many years, almost 20 or more maybe. We don't have it, you know. We're these Slavic cats, you know, playing Slavic music, you know, yearning for I don't know what, you know, hungry for things. Anyway, it's not, it's not American jazz, you know, in any way. So we shouldn't be calling it jazz. We should call it, you know, improvised music mm. because they definitely improvise. They're creative guys, but the background of this whole thing, it, it's really a classical Slavic, you know, not that groovy thing that America has, you know. Mm -hmm. America is the groove. Right. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's that, uh, it seems that there's a lot of camps in jazz. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> there be, you know, I think labeling it jazz, it's easier to, you know, maybe sell something, some records on the shelves, you know, of some stores. But again, you know, confusing, even, you know, you had a guy like uh, Keith Jarrett, who is recording for a German label, ECM, his entire life, right? There's certain aesthetic to this whole thing, how he plays jazz, you know? Some people think, you know, they will tell you he swings. I hear it differently, you know? I hear tons of classical approach in, in how he plays the piano and, and this whole thing, you know? Again, you know, I, I spoke to Billy Hart once. He says, you know, if you put, you know, he says, myself and Buster Williams behind you, you're going to be swinging. Mm. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be swinging. Right. You know, so that's that element, you know, in, in Keith Jarrett's, you know, ensemble, let's say, if we're talking, you know, Gary Peacock and, and you know, Dejanet. But, you know, his playing, he's very conscious, you know. He's a classically trained guy. As you know, he's recording up to this point, you know, classical music. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I hear it differently, and, and the guy who records him, you know, is pretty much documenting every step of his, you know, career, you know, comes from Europe. So mm -hmm. you, you just, if you look, just just look at that, you mm -hmm. know, this European guy seeing that in him, you know, so that also tells you, also tells you a little bit about what he does, you know. He's not recording Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea, although he did record Chick Corea, that's true, <laughs> twice, twice, that. twice, <laughs> but yeah, but that's how that goes. Hmm. <laughs> well, let's talk about your shift from uh, Poland to the United States. So that was via Ukraine, from what I recall. So you, you went and spent some time in Ukraine. You, you were in school in Poland. Uh, so let's talk about that and let's talk about how you made the move to Ukraine and then to the United States. Um, so 12 years in the School of Music in Poland. Uh, I finished with a diploma and while I was doing that, getting my school done, you know, finishing my, my diploma there, I uh, received an uh, invitation to study at Berklee College of Music. You know, they, they gave me 50% of the money, and they said, you know, if you have the other half, you know, come study. So I thought somehow, you know, I, I was dreaming that somehow that money would be put together and I would be able to go and study at Berkeley right away after, you know, high school kind of thing. But that didn't happen, of course, you know, that 50% was roughly $10,000 a year. My parents wouldn't be able to afford it and all that stuff. So I ended in Ukraine because I knew a professor from that school. And he was a really good guy, even though he was, you know, um, a classical pianist and teacher. He also, you know, knew a thing or two about jazz. And he kind of saw that, you know, what kind of person I was. He kind of read, you know, the personality. And he said, you know, if you want to come, come study, I'll teach you all I can, you know, stuff like that. So I spent two years with him, again, playing crazy music, you know, playing Szymanowski, Sonata, Preludes, you know, you name it, Chopin's and ballads and, and etudes and some transcriptions of Bach music, you know, and, and Beethoven and anything, you know, it was just crazy. But again, you know, good for you. Mm. If it doesn't kill you, you know, it would probably make you a little stronger. So he was the guy, you know, with the approach like... Uh, 
he says, how do you memorize music? I say, you know, I just play, play, and I memorize, and then I go play. He says, no, that's not how you do it, you know. He says, show me, you know, come here. And he opened the book on, on whatever page, it was uh, like Beethoven Sonata. He says, these first four bars, memorize them right now. And he sits down behind his desk and waits for me, you know. So I go, and I'm like, okay, I think I have it. He says, okay, close the book, open the piano, play. And I played it, and he says, this is how you're going to memorize the music from now on. So literally, at the kitchen table, sitting, memorizing the music, note by note kind of thing, left hand, right hand thing, you know. It's a short-term memory. You have to go to the piano and obviously put your muscles, you know, mm. into it and start practicing, but it can be done. You can really memorize lots of music that way. You know, if you don't have time with your instrument, you can actually, you know, do that to yourself. And, and you know, obviously much easier on a single line instrument slash sure. clarinet, but piano, really difficult. You know, I tried this with some, you know, uh, fugues and stuff. It can hurt your brain a little, you know, hmm. in the process. But it's, it's doable. It's actually good to know that it's possible, you know. Do you still use that technique? Not much, you know, because I'm, you know, like everybody, a little lazy, you know. But honestly, if I really had to, I would obviously make it work, you know. Mm. And it helps you kind of understand that, you know, uh, sight reading, your sight reading can be better just because of that method, you know. You, you can do a lot more than you think you can, you know. It's just uh, just a different approach to it, you know. Mm. We, we really can, you know, it's easy to memorize a bar or two, you know, by looking at them, you know, and like in an instant. So it's just, you know, a matter of practicing. But again, if life doesn't force you to do that, you know, you simply lose the, the skill mm. kind of thing, right? Yeah, right. But, you know, I, I never had this uh, dream of being a classical concert pianist, you know. First of all, like, I didn't have skills, you know, that some people have to, to make it happen. And then, you know, it was still, like, too nerve-wracking, honestly, to realize that I have these one million notes to play and it would be nice if I didn't miss any, you know, mm -hmm. like that idea kind of paralyzed me, you know, because I'm thinking, you know, I have so much more to offer as a free man going on stage and just improvising over two chords than just going and, and trying to memorize this piece, you know, that someone conceived, it's, you know, it's all great, but I believe certain people, myself included, should study the music. Take the best out of it, make it your own, put it into your own idiom, your own language, and, and spit it out, you know, and give it to people that way. You know, it's so much more interesting. And I think we're coming to a point in music where this, even classical music, is going to be less and less what people listen to, you know, like this live element of people creating stuff in front of you, I think is so much more, you know, attractive in, in many ways. And, and people react to it, even if you don't know what jazz is, if you just let yourself kind of be there in a moment and see what happens on stage when guys are having a conversation, much more interesting than seeing if at the fourth quartet by Beethoven, they, they played the legato correctly or they did the staccato or the dynamics were, you know, the way composer intended it to be. I think it's just, you know, it's great to study that stuff. And, you know, there's schools for that. You know, you should be doing it. But honestly, live performance, live act in front of your eyes, you know, it's like these chefs cooking your food in front of you, you know, much more interesting mm. than bringing you something from the back, microwaved, you know, three seconds before, you know, kind right. of thing. You know, like, we want to be part of the process, I think, you know. Audiences like that thing. So, anyway. Hmm. Wow. That's, yeah, it's interesting to, to think of it as, uh, you know, the creativity in interpreting something versus the creativity of creating something new Real based on, you know, your sort of perspective of where you want to go with it rather than interpreting those notes in your way. Yeah, like, you know, think of, you know, these actors doing Hamlet on stage solo. Mm. You know, it's, it's a great skill, you know. It means you have brain power to memorize all that stuff. Then you have to digest the text and you have to deliver it like it's your own. Mm. You know, it's a skill, you know, mm. it's great. But it's living someone else's life, you know. So how much do you want to give it, you know. It's only one life. You know, mm -hmm. that we get here. I believe that, you know, I know some people believe, you know, being cat and dog and, and, and what else afterwards. But, you know, mm. this things that, you know, one life and I'm going to spend it, you know, trying to figure out how he felt about this. Maybe not. But again, you know, it it's depend, depends on what kind of talents you have, obviously, you know. If, if you feel like you're mighty and, and 
you are actually doing it justice playing that kind of music, you know, and making people feel something and making them cry or whatever. That's awesome. I think, you know, maybe maybe that's that's your path. Hmm. Wow. So what, what took you then from uh, music school in Ukraine finally to, to Berkeley? Uh, I, I wasn't in Berkeley. I oh, ended sorry. up in at Western, up at Western, Western, Western Michigan Western University. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So what happened? Uh, uh, I went to a festival in Poland. Uh, they offered me uh, two weeks at one of the camps in Poland, which was like a it wasn't jazz camp per se. It was uh, an event where a bunch of students would come in, do their acts, sing, you know, poetry, everything. And part of it was a big band. That was led by a guy now really, really famous, Wodek Pavlik, who um, is a Grammy winner from two years ago. Um, he made a record with Randy Brecker, being a soloist with orchestra and stuff like that. You know, So uh, Wodek was there leading this whole uh, camp, and I was the only pianist that showed up actually for the thing, which was great because I had all the gigs, you know, that, that the orchestra <laughs> played and everything. Because, you know, people didn't treat it seriously, I guess, because they, th they knew it was like a student's festival with lots of crazy things going on, mm. not specifically music, music or jazz, you know, per se. So I went and it was an amazing time, you know, I, I got to study with uh, Wodek, but then these two guys who showed up was Tom Knifik and, and Trent Kiniston. Both of these guys were professors at Western Michigan University at the time. So Tom, his wife was Polish. So he already had experience of, of grabbing students from Poland and, and taking them to the States. So he knew how this whole machinery, you know, administration thing worked. And uh, there was another guy, Steve Zagree, who was a pianist and teacher. Um, and he was also, you know, interested. So they put together a package, put the money together. And this time I didn't have to pay anything, mm. just a plane ticket wow. to get to the States. So, you know, they sent me a message saying, you know, if you want to come, we have the money for you, come study, you know. so. Obviously, for a you know white guy from Poland, a dream come true. You know, because mm. I always wanted to study jazz in America. This was like the biggest thing that ever happened to me. You know, so wow. I jumped on the plane <laughs> <laughs> and arrived. You know, single, one alone. You know, in America, and they dropped me off at the you know dormitory, and I had to, I start my you know American dream thing. You know. <laughs> Playing jazz, studying jazz, meeting new people, and and you know then meeting all the greats like Billy Hart, Danilo Perez, Fred Hirsch, and many many others. You know through the school, through the program, finally making it to a IAJE conference, which I don't know if you know about, but this was like the biggest jazz conference for for jazz educators. Mm. This was between first only in America, then it also moved to Canada, and believe it or not, in 2004. No, 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 2003 probably. I was here in Toronto performing for the first time and my first visit to, to Canada ever. Oh, wow. I was here performing. Uh, mm, uh, there's another center, but we were stationed at uh, York oh, Hotel. Okay. And then there was another building just, just a few doors down hmm. uh, where we performed our, our, you know, our show thing. So... That's that. That was my school, you know, Western and, and five years of, you know, really meeting amazing, amazing people. Hmm. With a song inspired by the birth of his daughter and originally released on his debut album, The Runner Up, here is Bartosz Hadala performing Madame, recorded live during our interview.
So you you spent time in Michigan, but you also spent some time in New York, did you? So let's right talk about yeah. how you got to New York. Right after I finished school, you know, everybody was going to New York because we were real jazz cats, you know, <laughs> going for it. So uh, my some of my friends, close friends, moved to New York, so I decided to give it a try. Mm -hmm. I was there once for just a summer in 2001, I believe. It was rough, you know, because arriving in New York, the, one of the most expensive cities in the world and stuff like that, you know, I fumbled through the two-month period kind of thing, looking for jobs, hoping maybe I wouldn't be going back to school kind of thing, you know. But then... Uh, we had a little uh, episode of performing with um, uh, New York Voices yeah. Ensemble, which is the uh, same uh, idea as Manhattan Transfer, mm -hmm. two female, two male, you know, vocals, stuff like that. So they came, and uh, I was in the big band that um, backed them up for uh, a performance. It was a great experience, you know. And when I was kind of deciding whether I'm going back to school or not, came a message from Michigan that we are going to back up New York Voices at the Detroit Jazz Festival. Oh, wow. And I so wanted to be part of it that it took me back to school, you know, which was a great thing. You know, <laughs> obviously, the, the, the best thing that happened again, you know, that I wasn't stupid, you know, to actually stay without the diploma or anything in New York City. Mm. So I went back. We actually played the show uh, with them. And, and then I stayed at school for another, you know, I think, at least two years to finish and get my, you know, uh, Bachelor of Music thing there. So that was cool. And then afterwards, you know, I decided to go to New York again to try. And uh, this time I was a little bit more successful because, you know, uh, I, I managed to stay there, worked as an organist at uh, Polish Church in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, that pretty much, you know, that job saved my life in many ways. And then I got other jobs from, you know, being a musical director, uh, doing as much jazz as I could, you know, in the meantime, uh, playing with people like Adaravati, amazing sax player, you know. Um, then finding out that she was actually at the time married already to Randy Brecker. So that connection brought me to Randy and, you know, and, and all these things put together, um, made it possible for me to make a record in 2008 that actually featured, you know, Randy and Ada and Antonio Sanchez on drums and uh, and Dave Anderson, amazing bass player, Noriko Weda on double bass and my friend on percussion, Kevin Garcia. Mm. So, uh, you know, I have a very fond memory of, you know, oh, New man. York and all that stuff <laughs> and, and the recording session with these guys at the studio that doesn't exist anymore. It was mm. in Bennett Studios in New Jersey that unfortunately had to close down, you know, I don't know why, but, you know, hmm. it was run by Bennett family at the time. So anyway. So this would be your debut jazz album. Yeah, correct. The runner-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I like the music on it. I like the playing. And obviously, you know, uh, the thing I've learned back then is that, you know, you always, you have to dream first mm. who you want, who you want to play, make music with. And... You have to dream big, you know, because these guys actually, first of all, will teach you lots of things without saying a word to you. They'll teach you lots of things. And then, since they're so professional about everything they do, especially Antonio, you know, just like, he's a maniac probably, you know, going through someone else's music and getting ready for, for things. Like, you know, uh, he came so prepared that, you know, I remember even Ada saying like, Jesus, can you, can you see how professional that guy is? You know, like showing up, making everything sound amazing, giving his best, you know, really being there, you know, for me and, and you know, making the music sound great, even though, you know, I was, you know, young, again, not very young, but, you know, we all progress at our own pace kind of thing, you know, so this was really new to me at the same time, you know, I had a clear idea of what I wanted, you know, and, and, I'm glad it all kind of went through. And, you know, the record sounds better than I thought it would, obviously. You know, it's because with jazz, it's always magic. You know, you don't really, you can't say, oh, it's going to be this or that, you know. It's just you hope it's going to be something great and you put all your efforts in it because it's improv, really, you know. I don't care how many tricks you have. You have to put this into some kind of logical thing. You either do or you don't, you know. You... God knows, it's really magic, you know. You really don't know what's going to happen specifically 
-hmm. on that record, on that tune, what people are going to play, how people are going to react to each other, you know, and, and all these things. And remember, uh, well, you don't have to remember, I, I'll tell you now that this record was done in one day. So we had only wow. 10 hours to make this whole thing, you know, 10, to record 10 tunes and be happy with what we've done and stuff like that. So it was, you know, a little bit stressful, but at the same time, you know, putting us, you know, making sure that we were doing our job and, and quickly enough to, you know, to record this whole thing, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the results and, and you know, it's, it's something, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I like it. I, I really like it. I'm glad it's there and it's going to, you know, serve me for, you know, years to kind of, to go back, see what happened, how, analyze things, and, and you're, again, you know, dream big for whatever is coming next as far as, you know, the next recording, mm. you know, you, you want to, again, you know, make sure, because, as you know, the state of affairs when it comes to music and things in, in life in general, you know, we don't always, we don't get to make an album, you know, every year or every two years, you know, so you kind of want to plan uh, accordingly for what you want to do, but you you know you want to dream big again, and you know make sure that you have the best players you can possibly surround yourself with because you know it's your music, your direction. But these guys are just just as important, you know that they they can make things great, and you know you want that. Mm -hmm. And so since then you've uh, well obviously you moved to Canada. Uh, what was the impetus to move here? What brought you to Canada? You know, honestly, life in general, you know, some things, I was on student visa, I couldn't get things sorted out uh, in, in the States the way I wanted it. Mm. So uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going away, you know, uh, and uh, I had, obviously, I could go back to Europe to do things, but again, you know, I, I like American jazz, American, I like jazz, you know, <laughs> the way it is. Non-Polish jazz. Non-Polish jazz, non-Polish jazz. That, that's, that's one way to say it, yeah. So I thought, you know, and I had, I heard only great things about Canada, even from Randy himself, you know, saying, you know, there's going to be lots of great players, you know another place to explore kind mm. of thing, you know, and it was a really great move for many different reasons, you know, family stuff and, and other things. And uh, so, you know, I, I've been here since 2010 and, you know, still exploring the possibilities and, and meeting new people and, and playing, you know, as much as I can and whatever makes sense, you know, kind of musically. But again, I'm involved in, you know, many different things keeping some friendships from the States, like with Rupert Waits, who's a singer-songwriter. I, I, we, tour, uh, we toured Poland three times already. He's coming actually at the end of the month of April to do a few gigs here in Ontario with me. And uh, so, you know, uh, I go to Poland, do things, and, uh, you know, and here in Canada, I, I, in Toronto, I try, you know, my best, um, again, to meet as many people as I can and kind of... You know, I'm still a leader, so I'm, I'm always going with my music, kind of looking for people, you know, who would like to play my music and kind of look for the best, you know, uh, collective of people, you know, to, to make this music, like, to sound the way I want it to sound, stuff like that. How would you compare or contrast uh, Canadian jazz with American jazz? Like, there's... Every city has a different feel, you know, Chicago versus New York versus L.A. versus Toronto. Uh, how, do, how do you sort of characterize Toronto's jazz scene? Is, there, is, is, it, is it thriving? Is there a specific sound that comes out of Canada or comes out of Toronto? Uh, is it still searching for its, its own jazz soul? Is there, is there something about Toronto's jazz music that's, that's different or interesting? Well, I think, you know, the direction is always, it's kind of, you know, it's a global thing, right, these days, you know, we know what, what happens in New York, like, right away, you know, you can turn on the Facebook and, you know, and you see live concerts from Smalls in New York or, or other places, you know, so as, as we know, we're all connected and we kind of, you know, we know exactly what's going on on the, on the big scene mm -hmm. and, you know, all these guys, big guys are coming, just, just you know, mentioning Humber College where, you know, you can see Pat Metheny doing an interview, you know, right there, or, you know, last time Christian McBride, everybody, everybody is here pretty much, you know, so like, I, sh I would say, you know, Canada and in, in the US, it's, it's a one thing, you know, to me, like this whole thing, musician, musicians traveling back and forth, like the drummer that I, I'm working with right now, Nick Fraser, you know, we just 
travels back and forth, Toronto, New York all the time, you know, doing things. So I honestly don't see that much difference. Mm. The only difference is uh, the fact that it's a smaller community, which is nicer because, you know, it's a quicker access to too many guys, you know, mm. like Mark Kelso, you know, Mike Downs, Reg Brown, you know, all these guys. This is like really, you know, tight unit, you know, and you can quickly get to them. In New York, to get to guys of that caliber would take you a lot more time. Mm. Simply put, you know, like I've been there and I went through, you know, ladder, you know, step ladder kind of going up and up and up. And you have to go through some, you know, okay players until you get to these best ones, you know, and, and then you get to play with them more often and stuff like that. So in Toronto, it's a quicker process, I think, you know, to get to the best stuff really quickly. So hmm. Unfortunately, you know, we just regret that there isn't more, you know, venues mm. that would, you know, give opportunity for all these guys to kind of display their, you know, uh, stuff more often, you know, it's just uh, uh, that that's the only shameful thing. Although, you know, I don't know, maybe some people who have a little bit more money than I do should start thinking about this, you know, because, you know, let's say there's money in Canada and there's people, you know, who could totally, you know, make, buy some, you know, property and, and just organize a little, another, you know, jazz club mm. and another jazz club and another one, it would be just, you know, enough players for all these clubs to display, you know, great things. You know, let's talk for a second about, you know, the quality of a jazz club. You know, you want to have an instrument, at least like this, for a piano player who comes in to play a show, you know. You don't want to call it jazz club when the guy has to bring a keyboard in, mm. you know. So I say, you know, how many clubs do we have like this in, in Toronto? Probably two. Two? You know, or three. There's two. chalkers, you know, also. They have a piano there. You know, so we want that kind of thing, you know. Then you can have anybody, you know. And the guys from States will come in, this whole, you know, exchange is going to take place, and it's only good for us, you know. It's it's a one world of music anyway, you know. Is there enough of an audience to bring that in? Jeez, man. Uh, Humber produces audience. Mm. Uh, colleges in general produce audience, you know. If not Toronto, then what other city in Canada, you know? Like right. Two, over 2 million, you know, 2.5 million people in the city itself. GTA, huge. Mm -hmm. People, everybody's driving, you know, I think, you know, there's plenty. Also, you, you've seen it, you know, a friend of mine started a jazz series in, in Etobicoke uh, on Thursdays, you know, more so regularly things happen, you know, and, uh, you know, spreading these venues also give people access, you know, they don't have to drive all the way downtown to see jazz, they can, you know, parking is, you know, there and everything. And we want to think about that too, you know, that there's people who would love to see jazz live, but sometimes they don't have an opportunity because, you know, the, the nearest jazz club is, you know, 30 kilometers away or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, hmm. so. Some have said that there's a sensation about jazz where it's, it's, it, it feels exclusive in some way, that people aren't necessarily invited in to understand what it means or how to enjoy it. Some people suggest that it's a, it's a, it's a club for those that get it versus, you know, allowing people to come in and understand and enjoy. Do you feel that that, that's, that, that plays a role at all? Uh, you know, honestly, it, it is a good message to composers and leaders when it comes to jazz to think about it, you know? Mm. What kind of music you're writing and how you present it, you know? Uh, you can just look at Snarky Poppy we have Lardner Lewis playing in the band. Mm -hmm. Look what kind of music they're playing, you know. Just kind of see what kind of audience they have, you know, size-wise. And, like, kind of start to think, you know, if you want to approach it as business, you want to consider audience being part of it. If you uh, treat it as your own, uh, you know, lab, then people may feel the way you say if they feel, you know, like if it's something that's totally out somehow, you know, you have to understand the difference between jazz audience and general public. Mm. You know, you want to totally understand, you know, for them, simple four chords with major seven is going to sound like jazz. Mm. For us, it has to be, you know, seven over 15, over 19, 58, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, yes, it's still challenging. Yes, we do our thing. We do our our job, but think about the poor guy out there trying to, to make some sense out of it, you know? To, to general audience, up to this point, it will be clear melody of some sort and a nice groove behind it. I think it boils down to this, you know? Mm -hmm. Jazz has a really nice groove to it. It doesn't have to be all crazy, you know? Again, 
I understand, you know, we, all, we are all different, but we have to consider this. If we think about globally, in some ways of selling the music to someone, we kind of want to see, look around, you know, look at Herbie Hancock. He's done many great records, but, you know, the record he got his uh, Grammy Award for, I think that the latest one was where he invited, you know, Cohen, Nora Jones, uh, and all these singers mm. to sing music, and he was playing piano behind this whole thing, you mm -hmm. know? So he's also thinking how to bring jazz to the general public in some ways, and, you know, there are great records that I love, like The Possibilities, and mm -hmm. the one I mentioned was the second one, I, I forgot what it was called, but that was the one that got the record of the year, you know? Mm -hmm. So... There are guys who think about that stuff, and then there's a bunch of guys who think that, you know, jazz should be what it was back in 1950 you know, or 60 or 70 even, you know. I don't know. It, it's really, you know, it's you. If, if you're a leader, if you're writing music, you're a composer, you should think about, you know, what, what you're putting out. And kind of test it out on, on the audiences, you know. I can totally see how people react to, you know, a tune that's based on Chopin's music mm. and it's still improv and it's jazz players and it's jazz but there's the Chopin theme in it versus my own tune that kind of you know lacks the tonal gravity in in some ways you know you can see that people love that Chopin thing you know and this thing they they can distance themselves from, mm. you know so it's kind of you know it's interesting to see you you should be totally as a musician aware of those things is is there a is there a need for the for the composer to ignore the audience and try something different in the hopes of creating something that's completely new something that's that takes you beyond just what's consumable by the masses and then that gets distilled down into something that's then consumable is there room for that i'm i'm sure people are doing it you know there, there's definitely music, you know, that people simply, uh, let, let's put it this way, you know, they don't care mm. about the appeal. They just go for, you know, what they feel, how they hear the music and what they want from it, and they put it out. And, you know, there's tons of these albums, mm -hmm. you know. It, my question is, you know, what's the point of making these albums, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you're spending thousands of dollars on this, you know, and you're going to be listening to it in your car. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if that's how you see it, you know, that's one way of approaching this. Um, again, you know, I, I have no answers, you know. I, I write my own music. Uh, I like the way it sounds. Uh, and again, you know, I'm totally aware of the fact that some people will never even, you know, reach for a, a record like this unless there's something else on it. I don't know. God knows, man. It, really hard to tell, you know, what music really, how, what music, what style resonates with people, you know? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to tell. It's so, uh, you know, uh, kind of connected with the social thing, you know, and, and the money thing, and whether people are doing well or not, and all this, you know, it's so complicated to mm -hmm. figure this out, you know, why certain people become so successful and so popular, and others, you know, look, um, for instance, you know, we have Keith Jarrett playing since, I don't know when, you know, 70s, mm -hmm. you know, when he came on the scene with, with actually Miles a mm -hmm. bit, yeah? And, you know, his solo concert in 1975 from Cone, you know, when he's playing solo piano, this thing has been probably sold, you know, in, in I don't know, thousands of millions of copies probably, I don't know. You know, huge hit, you know, mm -hmm. since 75. Right. You know, and he has followers following him up, up to this point, and you know, it was him. Mm -hmm. He defined the genre that he, this whole thing, you know, is really today. It's him. It's his name, and everybody knows exactly what sound it is, you know. So, you know, maybe it's, it's a way of just staying true to who you are and, and going with it, you know, and, and just see what happens, because, you know, we cannot predict anything about this, you know. Either we stay true, or we follow, you know, the mass appeal. Mm. We know what mass appeal is, you know. We know mm -hmm. what commercial music is. Do I want to go this this way? No. You know, I'm not interested uh, because, you know, I just want to make music that makes me happy, that gives me some, you know, challenges me. So, no. But, you know, some people will go that way. Some people have just desire, you know, to, to please the masses, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they create that kind of stuff, you know. They, they know exactly what genre requires. 
to make it happen, you know, and, and it's a product that they're, they're getting ready for the market, you know, mm. they try their best to sell it. So I don't know how they're selling it, though. It's another, you know, we had a conversation about this. I don't know how they're making money if, if the, it's on YouTube and it's free. Mm-hmm. And, and the clip that cost probably, you know, 40-something thousand dollars to make is free for people to watch. I don't know if they actually make money from advertisement, you know, that happens before the video. I have no idea, you know, honestly, it's a mystery to me. All I know is that when you play a house concert and you have your own CD in hand, people will purchase that CD and that money goes back to you, you know? And you can ask for $20 per CD versus 10, you know, like people can purchase it on iTunes, but you can explain it to them that they get a full, you know, value in terms of sound this is what you paid for in the studio is on that CD, you know, it's mm-hmm. not the MP3 that actually... And a physical thing that you can hold. Yeah, and exactly some people, you know, still put, like my friend Rupert Waits, he puts a great deal into, you know, the design. You would see things, you know, with pictures of him if this was, a, you know, his latest CD with True Love songs. It was shot in some, you know, ghost city in, in mm-hmm. you know, Colorado or someplace, you know. You see him in pictures, you know, running with, you know, pistols and, and pretending like he's really, you know... Uh, shooting people there. Anyway, <laughs> so you know, some people are, are really into art of that right. thing, you know, yeah. packaging. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a great thing to have in hand, you know, plus the lyrics and everything. So, yeah. we another reason why, you know, vinyl is making a comeback is that it's it's the the full artistic element of it and and the the physical the physicality of it, you know, because the the current generation, if you will, the millennials are they've never really had physical media, right? They grew up listening to MP3s and they never had the opportunity to hold a record. So it's a, it has a, a cachet about it. There's something new and, and exciting about the idea of physically holding of music. And, you know, much bigger thing. People can actually paint something, you know. Mm. They don't have to worry about, you know, the restrictions. Right. Ten yeah. by ten kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good stuff, yeah. Hmm, fantastic. So what is next for Bartosz Hadala? Where are you, uh, what is your plan? What, uh, what kind of music are you doing? What are you interested in doing? What challenges do you want to take on? You know, it, daily on daily basis, uh, I, I write some stuff. I test it out with people. The latest project was the music of Chopin mm-hmm. that I did uh, just like a week ago um, with Nick Fraser and Mark Gottfried, and that was, I think, great success. You know, I, I've never tried it with a trio before, mm-hmm. and it worked. You know, uh, so I'm I'm happy with this. Maybe with a little bit of money, it could be documented on some kind of a record later on. And um, I just released a CD with um, with Polish Christmas music mm-hmm. that I arranged. You saw the show. I did, yeah. Back in the day, That's and right. and I have a um, I had great players. Also, actually, uh, you know, people from Toronto. We have Rich Brown on the record, and Marito Marks playing percussion and drums. Jeff Liebka playing guitar, and and uh, a bunch of guys from Poland, my friends, uh, jazz musicians. Uh, because the idea was kind of to jazz up, you know, the Polish carols. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also like good pop music, you know, and I like the, what Herbie does with, with music. So I, I put that, you know, jazz piano to a very definite, you know, drum groove thing, you know. So we created, like, I created 13 arrangements of, of, uh, of Polish carols. So that CD um, is out, will be officially out probably towards the end of the year when Christmas approaches again. And... Um, there will be another record with Rupert Waits this time. I will be actually arranging strings for his wow. record. I've done this in the past for him. Now it's going to be a full kind of thing. The whole, the entire record will be strings and, and guitar only kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, I'm also trying my best to finish my master's at York. So I, I'm writing uh, uh, two uh, compositions, actually orchestrating two of my pieces that I've written before that were on the runner-up CD. I'm orchestrating this so it could be performed with a chamber orchestra and a trio. Wow. That is going quite well. I'm surprised, but, you know, I'm actually, I think, I understand more and, and kind of have lots of fun doing it, even though it's very time-consuming. But, you know, it's it's going quite well. I have to say the, the music writing part, you know, there's other, the word writing part, too, that's coming, you know. So I don't know about that, but I know about <laughs> the music writing part. I'm kind of understanding the thing about that and then you know I'm part of the really fun band in Poland with 
with uh, drummer Jacek Peltz and a really great bass virtuoso electric bass player Maurizio Roli. Mm -hmm. You had a chance to listen to his records. Right and, there, uh, yeah. and then Machi Shikawa, a great tenor player. So we play Jacek's music. He's uh, also a composer. And uh, I've, done, I've done fun projects with him, actually, also orchestra and, and a jazz quartet thing. And now, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the band. We recorded a CD live once upon a time, and now we've been touring at least two or three times already in Poland to promote the CD. So hopefully there's more gigs coming. We just came back uh, in January from a short thing there. And uh, so, you know, and then there's a bunch of, you know, things, engagements where I accompany singers, do that kind of work. I'm also an organist at the church here in Toronto. So, you know... It's all music, which is the greatest part of it all, mm. and uh, and that's really important to me. You know, I, I pretty much don't teach. I don't teach at all, <laughs> so uh, which uh, I'm proud of. I don't know if I should be proud of it, but I just don't have enough patience. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I, I would have patience. I don't know with 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 my own kids. I don't have patience, so you know. <laughs> And I, I taught for a while, and I thought, you know, it's it's not me, you know. It it's really requires lots of lots of energy mm. that uh, I'd rather spend on something else, you know. Right. But uh, that's that. And uh, and I'm going to be, you know, exploring possibilities with this beautiful piano now at home. I'm going to, you know, hopefully write some more music. Mm. I, I have a recording session in mind for my next just album, which would be kind of, you know, more fusion hmm. stuff. Um, we actually made a little demo with uh, Larnell Lewis, Rich Brown, and uh, Kelly Jefferson, and Marito Marks on percussion. And that stuff uh, sounds pretty good already as a demo, you know, and I, I would love to maybe explore that if, you know, there's enough budgets down the road to make it happen. But, you know, uh, that would be it, yeah, kind of thing. And you've offered your services to my charity project, yeah. uh, New Shores Project, which is uh, uh, raising money for refugee resettlement uh, organization here in Toronto. And uh, and I really appreciate you doing that. You've already donated a track, which is amazing. Uh, you sneaked me a copy of it so I could have a listen and, uh, and was just absolutely blown away. It's a phenomenal track. I'm just, I, I'm amazed that... Uh, that I got the opportunity to to get a hold of that, so oh, uh, <laughs> I can't wait to I can't wait to get that out there so that everybody gets to hear it and they can uh, they can hear how wonderful this is. So that's I really appreciate you uh, you being a part of that, and thanks so much for taking the time and letting me uh, come and take over your home and uh, and see your brand new piano and yeah, yeah, no, it's it's absolutely beautiful, man. Thank you so much. No a great time. Thank thanks you. very much. To learn more about Bartosz Hadala, please visit his website at bartoshhadala.com, spelled B-A-R-T-O-S-Z-H-A-D-A-L-A. Find him on Facebook or follow him on Twitter at Bart Hadala. For more information on the New Shores Project, of which Bartosz is a contributing artist, please check out newshoresproject.org or at New Shores Music on both Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Cadenza Podcast, Sounds Edition. Cadenza features conversations with musicians, producers, educators, and artists who are passionate about sharing their stories of shaping new sounds, experiences, and ideas. Look for new episodes including the Scenes Edition, a video podcast companion, and live special editions featuring performances from notable artists.